John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. So Peter went out to the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lined with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Dead people don't rise from the dead. That's something that a family member of mine said to me in a recent conversation I had to him about Christianity. This family member isn't a believer in Jesus. I am a believer in Jesus, and we were talking about what it means to be a Christian, and he said... Dead people don't come back to life. And I actually kind of appreciated that because it brought an immediate sense of clarity to our conversation. Because at the end of the day, the difference between those who follow Jesus Christ and those who don't yet follow Jesus Christ is whether or not one believes that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. If you're not a Christian or if you are a Christian, you should know that that is the primary issue that Christianity hangs on. And so you can disagree with other Christians on all manner of other topics. And Christians do disagree, lovingly, hopefully, on all manner of topics. But that is one issue that divides those who are in the faith from those who are not yet on board with that reality. And that's always been the bottom line with the Christian faith. So did Jesus rise from the dead? Well, today we're going to look at the narrative from John's perspective of Jesus's resurrection. And we're not going to get into all of the evidence, 
for the resurrection of Jesus, but I would love to speak with you afterwards or at some point in the next couple of weeks if that's an interest, interesting topic to you. I think the evidence is actually very profound and very compelling. And one of the reasons we started this church was to speak with people that disagree with us on that topic about it. So we'd love to talk to you more about what the evidence for the resurrection is. But this morning, we want to just look at what John tells us because he was there. He was an eyewitness to all of these events And hopefully, as we look at this text, the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, will be at work in our hearts, helping us to see not just that it's true, but why it matters. So let me set the stage for us. Last week, we looked at John chapter 19, and in John chapter 19, Jesus of Nazareth is crucified. He's put to death on a wooden cross outside of the city of Jerusalem. And we read that Jesus says in chapter 19, verse 30, it is finished, and then he gave up his spirit. And we talked last week about the meaning of the death of Jesus, that Jesus finishes the work that God the Father gave Jesus to do. And that Jesus' death brings redemption to the world. It brings forgiveness of sin, sin that we commit against God and against each other. But that statement that Jesus' death brings redemption to the world is only actually true if Jesus also was raised from the dead. You see, the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus must be attached. The New Testament tells us elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus Christ is still dead, then we are all still in our sins and our faith is vain. And we, Christians of all people, are the most people, or the most people, sorry, the people most to be pitied in the world. And what we're doing here is a complete waste of time and really utter foolishness and rubbish if Jesus isn't alive. So for the death of Jesus, what we looked at last week, to have meaning, the resurrection of Jesus has to be a reality. But thankfully, Jesus has actually been raised from the dead. And that's what we see in our story this morning from the eyewitness testimony of John. And so let me summarize the main idea, and then I'll give you a layout of where we're going. And then we'll jump into the story. So first, here's the main idea. Jesus is raised from the dead so that those who believe can be a part of God's family along with him. Jesus is raised from the dead so that those who believe can be a part of God's family along with Jesus. Three points as we go through these verses. The run, the turn, and the announcement. First, the run. John tells us that Mary, this is Mary Magdalene, came to the tomb of Jesus Very, very early on Sunday morning, before the sun had risen, it was still dark. And the first thing she saw is that the huge, massive stone had been rolled away from the door, the entrance into the crypt or the tomb of Jesus. Now, as you might imagine, that probably scared and confused Mary. We know from other gospels that there were actually other women with Mary. John only mentions Mary Magdalene. But there were other women there, and they likely think that the body of Jesus had been stolen by the Romans or by the Jewish religious authorities, which is why Mary twice says in verse 2 and in verse 13, they have taken the Lord. That's what she thinks has happened. They've stolen his body, and I don't know where they have laid him. So what does Mary do? Well, she does probably what most of us would have done. She runs away. She calls for backup. And notice that John tells us that Mary ran. She ran back to the house where John, who is the disciple that Jesus loved, and Peter were hiding out. 
And she told them what she had seen. And we read in verse 2 and verse 3 that Simon Peter and John went out and ran to the tomb. And we assume, we know actually, that Mary Magdalene followed them. So Mary ran back to get John and Peter. And then John and Peter ran to the tomb. If you notice, the story mentions three times, verse 4, verse 6, verse 8, that John got there first. I think John was competitive. That's maybe one of the ways he's trying to get a dig in at Peter. Notice in verse 6, then Simon Peter came, following him. That's following me. (laughs) Verse 8, the other disciple, parentheses, who got there first, by the way. I actually think part of the reason John tells us three times that he got there first is to add credibility to his story as an eyewitness and because he was competitive. Both of those can be true. So anyway, they run back to the tomb, and I want you to just get your imaginations in the story with me this morning. Think with me about what must have been going through the minds of Peter and John as they hear from Mary Magdalene, leave the house they're hiding out in, and sprint towards the garden where Jesus is buried. Maybe they're angry, thinking it wasn't enough for those people to murder my friend and my teacher. Now they've got to steal and desecrate his body as well. Maybe they feel guilty. Peter, perhaps, is thinking, I abandoned my friend in the moment of peril when a servant girl asked me if I knew him. I told her, get away from me. I've never heard of the guy. Maybe, just maybe, Peter and John are hoping against hope. As they run and as their breath begins to get light, in their minds, they're twirling around perhaps the idea, could he really be alive? No, that's impossible. John had seen them pierce Jesus' side with the spear. Perhaps John is remembering, though, some of the things that Jesus had said to his disciples while he was still with them. He alludes to this in verse 9. Jesus said again and again, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And in three days, I'm going to be raised. What must they have been thinking? I think that likely they're hoping against hope that something amazing has happened, but they don't yet understand it. This past fall, I was watching a Cowboys game and I got home from church and did a few things and turned on the game and it was at halftime. And they were doing a... uh, memorial or a celebration of the U.S. military. And it was one of those things that some of you probably are familiar with, where they have multiple families and family members of particular military troops who have been deployed come out at midfield and they honor them and the MC is talking about them. And and I remember turning the game on at the exact moment where this is taking place. They have this one family out there, a wife and her two daughters. One was about 12, the other one was probably six or seven. And they were saying that this family's husband and father has been serving in Afghanistan with the army for a year or more. And then suddenly, you know what happens, right? Off of the sideline, which is crowded with people, the husband walks out and surprises his family. And I always think, okay, are my allergies bothering me? You know, I'm a sucker for these things. I get a little misty. And uh, you know, when, when the wife and the two daughters saw their dad and when she saw her husband, what do you think they did? They sprinted 30 or 40 yards away, but they took off 
They didn't care that there were thousands and thousands of people watching and millions watching them on TV. They were gone in a dead race to meet their dad. And, of course, it's a great moment. Their dad picks up their girl and hugs them, and the wife comes last. Wife's always finished last in those races. The kids outrun mom, and they get there, and they all hug and embrace in the middle of the field with a star right there. It's a very awesome thing. And I imagine that James and John, perhaps, or excuse me, Peter and John, perhaps, were experiencing something similar to what that family was experiencing when they were hoping against hope that maybe, just maybe, he's come back. Maybe, just maybe, he's returned. And so what happens? Well, they run back to the tomb, and they get there, and they see four things. John gets there first, and he hesitates. Peter, of course, as is according to his nature, rushes right in without any thinking into the tomb, and they notice four things. First, they notice that the stone has been rolled away, so that what Mary Magdalene had told them is true. So there's more credibility to this testimony. There are now three witnesses to the stone being rolled away. Secondly, they notice upon entry into the crypt that there's no body. That's a pretty big deal. The body's gone. Third, they notice that the linen cloths that Jesus had been wrapped in after he had died are, verse 6, lying there. Now, that word lying there in the Greek, which is the language the New Testament is written in, is one word. And it doesn't mean they were just kind of thrown to the side like your seven-year-old does with his or her clothes in their room. It means they were placed there with intentionality. And then fourthly, the face cloth, verse 7, which had been on Jesus' head, was not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, why in the world does John add those seemingly random details? Well, for one, because they're random. It bears the mark of eyewitness testimony. If you witness something significant, it's likely that you're going to remember random details. So this doesn't bear the mark of a story that's been concocted or made up later on. It bears the mark of a story that's given by eyewitnesses. But the second and more important reason why John mentions it is because it's more evidence that Jesus' body had not been stolen. People that steal a body don't stop to fold up the grave clothes. And they particularly don't stop to take the linen cloth that was on his face and fold it up like our communion stuff is neatly folded up here and set it over to the side in a separate place. All of this is evidence that no one has taken Jesus' body. Jesus' body has come back to life and he has broken out of the tomb. And so they see these things and they wonder what's going on. And we read that John, when he saw these things, verse 8, saw... And believed. John saw and believed. He began to understand the scripture, verse 9, that Jesus was to rise from the dead. So John here surveys the evidence and he remembers what Jesus had said to him and he believes that Jesus is risen. This reminds me of, um, you know, movies that all of us have seen where there's a huge plot twist at the end. I think about The Sixth Sense, that movie with Bruce Willis from the 90s. I think the statute of limitations has passed on whether I can give that away, right? That's 20-something years ago. I'm not going to give away the ending. There's a big twist at the ending, though. And at the ending, when you find out what the twist is, the director of the film takes you through this montage of scenes that didn't make sense in the moment. But now that you know the twist, all of those scenes fall into place. You know what I'm saying? 
That's exactly what's going through John's mind here. He's remembering the transfiguration. He's remembering what Jesus had said when he said, I'm going to rise from the dead. He's remembering what the Old Testament prophesies, Isaiah 53, Psalm 23. And it's all beginning to fall into place for John here. He has an epiphany at this very moment and believes that Jesus Christ is risen. They run back to the tomb. They see it's empty. And John, at least at this point, believes. There's two questions you should ask yourself at this point. First, have you considered the, rep, the evidence for the resurrection? And secondly, if you have considered the evidence for the resurrection, which I suspect most of you have, the second question is, have you experienced the elation that comes with believing it? Some of you might be skeptical of the resurrection. And so what you should see this as is evidence, again, from eyewitnesses who actually ended up giving their lives in very grisly, gruesome ways because they believed this to be true. It's not something they made up. The best explanation for what happened to Jesus' body is that he was raised from death to life. But others of you, I suspect a lot of you perhaps, might sort of rationally or intellectually accept this as some incredible incident in history, but you've not yet experienced deep personal joy from it. The sense that Peter and John had as they were running to the empty tomb. And I want you to ask yourself, why not? Why have I not experienced the joy that should accompany believing that Jesus Christ is risen? You need to know that the resurrection is not just a unique historical occurrence. The resurrection is God saying to you that death and injustice and evil will not win in this world. Can you see that? John asks us, God asks us through John's writing every week to see Jesus and to believe that he is the Christ so that you may have life in his name. We see that in the run. Second, the turn. So John and Peter leave. Why do they leave? That's a random thing to do. I don't know why. The story doesn't tell us. I imagine they're like, well, this is neat. I guess we'll go home now. And so they went back to their house, but Mary stays. We read in verse 11 that she was weeping outside the tomb. She still doesn't exactly understand what's happened. And as she weeps, verse 11, she looks into the tomb and Mary sees something that the disciples had not seen. She sees two angels sitting where the body of Jesus had been, one at the head and one at the feet. And they ask her a question. They say, woman, why are you weeping? And that's not a, that's not a, a question that's meant to condemn Mary. Like, come on, Mary, figure it out. It's a pastoral compassionate question. It's a question of empathy. They're not criticizing Mary. They're ministering to Mary here. And her reply is the same as it was in verse 2. They've taken the Lord away, and I don't know where they've laid him. And so Mary turns around, and she hears someone perhaps rustling in the garden outside and sees a man walking. And initially she thinks he's the gardener. We know it's Jesus. Why didn't Mary know it was Jesus immediately? We don't know. Maybe it's because her eyes were really bloodshot and puffy from crying. Or maybe she was supernaturally prevented by God from knowing that it was Jesus right away. We don't know, but she doesn't know right away that it's Jesus. And then Jesus asks her the exact same question the angels had just asked her. Verse 15, woman, why are you weeping? And then he adds, whom are you seeking? She doesn't know it's Jesus. And so she says, sir, if you carried him away, 
That's ironic, isn't it? He actually did carry himself away. If you carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. Mary just wants Jesus' body so that she can care for the body and so that she can continue to be devoted to the Lord that she thinks is dead. And then we have what I think is one of the most poignant and moving parts of the entire Bible. Jesus says one word, her name, Mary. And Mary has apparently turned away from this man that she thinks is the gardener. And she hears his name, her name called and she turns around. And in the two seconds it takes for Mary to turn and see Jesus, everything in her world changes. In the two seconds it takes for Mary to turn around and see Jesus, the entire universe changes. Mary, in one second, is in the gloom of despair and death. And two seconds later, Mary is in the joy of light and life. Mary, in one second, is experiencing profound grief and loss. But Mary, in the next second, after she hears her name, turns to experience joy and restoration. Mary at one moment thought that her Lord was dead and it was all for naught. And then in the very next moment, Mary sees and believes that her Lord was dead, but now he's alive again and it will all be well. Mary has the honor of being the first eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I love what Frederick Bruner writes. Listen to what he says. In the one or two seconds this turn took, I imagine the world shifting ever so slightly on its axis And at about this turn's one-second midpoint trajectory, history, too, moved almost imperceptibly from B.C. to A.D. What is it that makes the difference between Mary not seeing and Mary seeing? What is it that turns her from death and despair to life and hope? What is it? It's when Jesus speaks her name. Do you remember John chapter 10? Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and I call them by name. They hear my voice and they follow me. Jesus is alive and Jesus is shepherding Mary. Jesus conquers death and then calls Mary out of death into life with him. And here's the truth. That's the way that Jesus calls all of us. He speaks our name. Have you heard his name? Have you heard your name spoken by Jesus? I remember when I heard it. I didn't hear a literal voice, Luke, but it was close. It was after my freshman year in college. I've told you this story before. I was in the living room of the house I grew up in, and I was sitting by myself reading John chapter 10. And I remember becoming profoundly overwhelmed, hit like a club to the side of the head with the grace of God for me personally in Jesus' death and resurrection. And I remember falling down on my knees and weeping for joy because Jesus knows me by name. He died for my sin. He was raised that I, Luke Evans, might have life with him forever. Have you heard Jesus speak to you? Listen, he's speaking to you right now. Right now. You might not hear him call your name personally. But 
through the word of God, Jesus speaks. Listen, Jesus, the living rabbi king, loves you. He loves you. Jesus died on the cross for you. Jesus conquered the grave for you. Jesus right now is here. He's here right now through the Holy Spirit. And he's present right now. And he's drawing people to himself by his spirit. Jesus Christ is alive. He's risen. He's reigning. He's speaking to you through this story. The real resurrected King and Lord. And so the question is, are you going to respond to Jesus' call? Are you going to turn? Like Mary turns. And see Jesus in his resurrected glory. That's all that he asks of you. He asks you to look at him. See him for who he is. See that he loves you. That he came back from death to rescue you. He's not going to leave you. Nothing can drive you away from him. He is yours. You are his. Believe in me, he says. Trust me, he says. Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Mary turned and the universe changed. Will you turn? Will you turn from death and despair and hopelessness and see that Jesus Christ is risen? That's the question. This is not some arbitrary random thing that you're here this morning hearing this story. God has called you here to ask you that question. The run, the turn, the announcement. Mary sees Jesus, and I love this next part, verse 17. What does Mary do? Well, she hugs him. That's a good thing to do, hug the resurrected Jesus. She clings to him. She embraces him. I mean, imagine how joyful Mary is. She's overcome, and there's no question that Jesus receives her hug and her embrace. He loves Mary just like he loves you, but next Jesus says, don't cling to me. For I've not yet ascended to the Father, but I go to my brothers and say to them, etc., etc. Now, that's confused people for centuries, but it shouldn't be confusing. Jesus isn't saying, hey, get off me. Quit hugging me. Quit crying. Come on. No, he's saying, Mary, you can't hug me forever because you have a job to do. I've given you an announcement, and you need to go and talk about it. Remember in The Princess Bride, uh, towards the end... After Princess Buttercup thinks she has been married to this evil king, Humperdinck. And she goes back to her room thinking that her true love, Wesley, is dead. And uh, she sits down in a chair and looks in the mirror. And Wesley happens to be hiding out in her, her room. And he's, he's very weak because he's just been uh, tormented by bad guys. And he can't really get up. And so he says, Buttercup. And she, what does she do? She runs and hugs him and kisses him. And he's like, gently gently, gently. And then he says, stop, stop, stop. We've still got to beat Prince Hupperdink. You can't hug me forever. Now, the evil prince of darkness has already been defeated in this moment, but that's Jesus's point. I'm glad you're clean to me. Yes, I'm alive, but you need to go. So he gives her an announcement. And as we wrap up, I want to tell you two things about this announcement, the content of it and the pattern. Okay, so stick with me. First, what is the content of the announcement? Well, verse 17 tells us, Jesus tells Mary Magdalene, go tell my brothers, interesting that he uses that term, my brothers, that I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. Now, what's going on here? Here's what's happening. Jesus is saying, I'm alive again. I've conquered death. And what that means is that all of my people are now a part of my family. Here's what Christianity teaches in its very essence. 
Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, those who trust him by faith have God as a father and Jesus as a brother. Now notice that Jesus doesn't say, I'm ascending to our father. Do you notice that? He says, my father and your father. Why? Well, because our relationship with with God is not the same as Jesus' relationship with God. Jesus is the only begotten son of God. He has always been God's son as they exist eternally in the Trinity. We are adopted sons and daughters through Jesus by faith, but we have full access and privileges to everything that Jesus has, which is why Galatians 4, 7 tells us that if you believe in Jesus, you are no longer a slave, but a son or a daughter. And if a son or a daughter, you are an heir through God. So the resurrection of Jesus means that God is our father through Jesus Christ. He's adopted us. And he's a perfect father. Filled with perfect love. Knowing that God is our father in Jesus should gladden our hearts in a wonderful way. It gives us the deepest comfort and the deepest joy. The honor of being a son or a daughter of God is just, it's stupefying. I mean, to be a child of some rich king would be a great thing. But to be the beloved of the emperor of the universe is beyond words almost. The salvation that Jesus brings, you see, it's better than just forgiveness of sins, great though that is. But what it means is that your sins are forgiven and then you come into God's family. Other religions claim to offer forgiveness. But only the gospel says that in Jesus, you're forgiven and the one true God welcomes and embraces us as his children, never to send us away. That's why John tells us way back in chapter one, to all who received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The content of the announcement is that if Jesus is alive and if you believe it, you're a part of God's family now and forever. Last, the pattern. What's the pattern of the announcement? It is this. Those who see and believe that Jesus is risen are called to go and tell that Jesus is risen. Do you see that? Believers in the resurrection immediately become announcers of the resurrection. That's what Mary Magdalene does. That's what Jesus tells her to do. And it's joy that spurs us to do this. Jesus sends us to do this. It's his command to Mary, go and tell. And then he commands the same thing to his disciples, by the way, in verses 20 through 23. We'll look more at that next week. His spirit goes with us and he commissions us to announce to the world that Jesus Christ has died and that Jesus Christ has risen. So we got to ask one more question as we close. If you believe that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, if you believe that death has been conquered and Christ is alive, are you declaring it and are you announcing it to the world? I mean, if you believe in the resurrection, let me ask you, Do you really? Because those who believe in the resurrection tell people about the resurrection. And there's often a disconnect here. Sadly, the longer we're around Christians, the more disconnected we get from that reality. And the reason is because we have lost the joy of the resurrection. To some degree or another. Because joy about the resurrection brings boldness in telling the resurrection. Do your neighbors know you believe this? 
Do your coworkers and your classmates know that this dead man has come back to life and he offers forgiveness to the world? Do they know that? Do your workout partners know that? Do your children know that you believe that? Do your family and friends know that you believe that? If they don't know, perhaps it's because you have forgotten the joy. The mission that Jesus sends Mary on and the mission that Jesus sends us on comes from an explosion of joy that Jesus is alive. So let me call us and let me call myself to repent. To repent of our failure to do the second half of what Mary is called to do here. I don't want to guilt you. I don't want to guilt me. But we do need to hear that Jesus tells people, go and tell others that I am alive. If you're not doing that, if I'm not doing that, we are disobeying the resurrected king of the universe. And really, more importantly, we haven't really understood the power of the resurrection. I remember when uh, Marianne and I first got married, even before we got married, we went through uh, Dave Ramsey. Some of you probably know Dave Ramsey, kind of financial planning stuff. And I'm a liberal arts guy, so I know nothing about money. And uh, (laughs) he helped me understand some basic things about money. And I got super excited about it. And I was like telling everyone, all my liberal arts friends, hey, we're going to be poor because you're going to be like a teacher and none of us are going to make any money. So the money we do have, we should learn how to manage well. You should take this class. You know why? Because that class helped me. It really transformed the way I thought about finances, which is an important deal. And so I talked to people about it. Has the resurrection of Jesus transformed you? Does it transform me? If it has, if it has, then joy explodes out into mission. That's the pattern of resurrection life. It's the pattern of following Jesus. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. That's good news. It's good news. I hope you'll believe it. And then I hope you'll tell others about it. Let's pray.